Hello everybody and welcome to Floor Fight, the post-rider serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner. I'm your host and your announcer, Michael DeVito. Thanks, Mike. I'm your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. Welcome back to the podcast, to the exciting showdown we have before us. We have just eight finalists remaining after the third round. Welcome to the electable eight, Mike. Round four. (laughs) Ironic because these people did not win their elections, but yes, welcome. (laughs) The reason they didn't win these elections, of course, was because all of our entries in this bracket are losing presidential candidates, because the premise of our first season is to pit all of these losers against each other. (laughs) It's all funny calling them losers. Pit all these losers against each other to determine the answer to this question. Who was the greatest president we never had? Reminder for our listeners how this works, we started with the 56 runners-up in the competitive U.S. presidential races, plus 16 of the top third and fourth place finishers, eight of whom won their play-in games to make it into the top bracket, but they are all gone now. We lost every single play-in. All candidates were seeded based on their percentage of the popular vote. We have only one number one seed remaining still, and that is Al Gore, who is actually our lowest seeded of the top seeds. He got 48.4% of the popular vote in the 2000 election. Another interesting fact, we only have two number two seeds remaining in our electable eight here. As we go through each match-off, we will introduce the candidate, the year, their seed, who they were bested by, and give some context that you guys really know who they are at this point. Then Mike and I will debate the merits of each against each other before crowning that round's champion. If we can't agree... We will flip a coin. It's coming. <laughs> it's going to happen. What if that's how we determine the winner? That'd, that, that'd, that'd be, be shock. Big, big if true. Thank you, Lars, and thank you to the listener. Yes, you, you, the listener, can follow along with our live updating bracket on our website. Just go to thepostwriter.com slash floorfight to see the seeds, victors, upcoming matches, and follow along with us each step of the way. You made an ob- observation before we uh, started recording, Lars, that couple of our contestants have something in common. Yeah, I mean, we're down to eight names, right, man? And I, I've gotten, like, I, I'm going to miss some of these guys. We've gotten really close with all eight of our finalists here. And it's just kind of interesting to think about, like, why, why all eight of them advanced. What do they all have in common? Well, at least four of them have in common that they lost to. Either President George W. Bush or President Andrew Jackson. Yeah. The other thing they all have in common is they are all at the federal level. None of these people are governors. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that that, that is true. Yeah, they've all held federal, national office, including some of them have been president. Actually, Uh, four of them have been president. What? Bush, Harrison, Oh, no, Clancy, yes, you're right. Yes, Ford, you are correct. President. Yeah, wow. Okay, so I guess we, unlike the people voting in their respective elections, have a bit of an incumbency bias. I think we've been pretty fair across time. We've got some pretty good names from the 1800s, which I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am going to miss some of these guys when they're gone. Or, or women. There's still one woman remaining. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will too. I, you know, when else will I get to talk about Benjamin Harrison? Because we talked about him surprisingly a lot. He's our Cinderella story, man. He is. All right. Should we get on with it? Should we get on? Let's let's with uh, with the electable eight. 
Let's let's get rid of half of them. Let's do it. Okay. So the first of our four matchups in round four, we have President George H. W. Bush, a number eight seed, versus former Secretary of State and former First Lady Hillary Clinton, a number two seed. You really know who these guys are. George H. W. Bush, he lost re-election in nineteen ninety-two to Bill Clinton. What else did he do? <laughs> do I really got to unpack it all? We've talked about him now like five times. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to. It's fine. Of course, Hillary Rodham Clinton, you know, won the popular vote, but lost the electoral vote to Donald Trump in 2016 in a very bitter, very bizarre election. So it's interesting, right? Because obviously Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush, which is you know, just like a weird connection here. It's two, two people very close in Personally. time period as far as the runs go, but not as close as the next matchup. Yeah. So we've been very kind to Bush so far in this bracket, I think. So he beat Andrew Jackson, who we kind of don't like very much. He beat Samuel Tilden, who was a one seed just because he's the only uh, loser to have won the majority of the popular vote. We felt bad uh, for him, yeah. Yeah, and then he beat William Jennings Bryan, who we were kind of like lukewarm on as well. I feel like you're going to take the knives out on Bush this round, though. It, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> to bring the hammer we, down. We we have made a very positive case for Bush in the in the last few episodes. And you know, last episode I kind of started to forecast like where I think we're gonna go. But I also started by saying you think of him as like a boring president in an unboring time. And I've been like fascinated by this like Bush Biden like bookends comparison of the first Cold War and now the second Cold War. If we're gonna go that far, is they're just very similar people. But. I have some qualms with, with a George H.W. Bush re-election. Okay. Here's where I'm going to start on this one, because it's going to set him up most promisingly against his, uh, his foil here in Hillary Clinton. We all know about George H.W. Bush's Supreme Court nominations, don't we? This is true. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Clarence Thomas is someone who... I'm not a huge fan of right now, uh, and George H.W. Bush certainly nominated him to the bench. Now, when Bill Clinton becomes president in the real world, he gets Justices Byron and White both retire. They'll both would live longer, so I guess it's kind of questionable whether or not they would have stayed on if Bush had remained president. Do we like Bush's <laughs> Supreme Court nominees? Other than Clarence Thomas? David Souter, actually not too bad. Yeah. Um, my favorite story about David Souter is that, so he's from New Hampshire, and George Bush's chief of staff was, I think it was John Sununu. It was one of the Sununus who obviously are a big New Hampshire political family. And he, John Sununu asked somebody in New Hampshire, like, hey, who from New Hampshire should I, uh, should, should I nominate to the court? And they were like, oh, totally David Souter. And Justin was like, oh, great. A solid conservative David Souter. And then David Souter's actually not, like, he was pretty moderate. And like, he, like John Sununu just liked him because he was from New Hampshire. <laughs> so you win one, you lose one there. Yeah. The reason I bring that up first, and we can go into a lot of depth in, in this Bush v. Clinton scenario, is I think one of Hillary Clinton's biggest strengths is what would happen to the Supreme Court had she have been president. Because she would have had the opportunity to certainly nominate at least two justices. That is the seat vacated by Scalia that it's, you know, sat empty for a year up until that point. And then obviously Ginsburg's seat at the end of 2020, right? And you would assume... Kennedy would probably still retire. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know enough about Anthony Kennedy to make that judgment, honestly. Who knows? At least two. Possibly three. Well, the point is, though, it's like you replace Scalia, so it automatically gives you a liberal majority. Yeah. And then 
yeah, like you said, Ginsburg still probably dies. So, and you, and maybe even Ginsburg, she's persuaded to resign before she passes. Right. So obviously, yeah, that that's a big trump card. If you're ironic <laughs> ooh, about it. Ooh. Here, here's here's a little here's a little little wrench I'll throw in there though. Sure. In our uh, Hillary Clinton is president universe. Mm-hmm. Does she have a Republican Congress? <laughs> so uh, we sort of talked about this earlier on. I think we could pretty fairly assume that she probably gets control of the Senate if she wins that election, mm. just because there are like two races in 2016 that are narrow. If not, can you imagine if the Republicans did not let her, like she nominated someone, she comes into office, she's like, Scalia C is still open. I've been elected. I'm going to nominate Merrick Garland. <laughs> Do you really think Mitch McConnell just like sits for four years? Don't answer that question. But... Uh, I, 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 yes, I, I think he probably does. I think that's still better than the alternative, though. You know what I mean? You have a 4-4 court at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I th- yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. And Yeah. No, and I, I yes, I, obviously I'd much rather have her be president than, than Donald Trump. Any other any other contra bush point? Yes. Speaking of okay. contra, <laughs> George H. W. Bush, I think, is usually considered one of the most underrated presidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while doing my research last episode and this episode, there is a not so quiet part of kind of the DC insiders and kind of the modern political writers that think he is the most overrated president of all time, actually. Mm. And you know, I went through a bunch of these articles and, and thoughts and think pieces and whatnot. And they, they all kind of centered on a few things. And the main one was he prioritized short-term political gains at the expense of long-standing virtues. He became anti-choice when it was convenient. He pardoned all of the Iran-Contra people because it was politically expedient. He criticized the 1964 Civil Rights Act for political expediency. The flag burning, uh, Texas v. Johnson and the Supreme Court case there, and then Bush tries to pass another flag burning bill, signs it, and the Supreme Court is like, no, we just said this is unconstitutional. You cannot do this again. And they struck it down too. He also escalated the war on drugs. And there are like a lot of policy complaints I think you could make about Bush in that regard. Not all of his decisions, especially on the domestic front, are very good at all. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's funny, right? Because I feel like we've talked about this not on just this podcast, but on a lot of other podcasts where it's like, well, you know, Bush was a moderate compared to Reagan. He ran as a moderate in the primary. Yeah. Um, And actually, like, I'm almost done reading Reagan Land, so I'm almost an expert in Ronald Reagan. But (laughs) (laughs) um, it's like it's 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 almost hilarious how like little they liked each other at the beginning and how and like Reagan's supporters, especially like there were people who were threatening to walk out of the convention if, if he chose Bush as his running mate. Yeah. But the thing is, is that like, yeah, Bush adopts the sort of conservative orthodoxy positions because he has to and that's what's popular and all that stuff. We're, we're, I think we're just kind of like, in a way, just kind of like churning, trying to find a reason to justify like Hillary Clinton winning outside of like, she would be president and Donald Trump would not be. I, I have those too. Okay. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. There are, there are definitely issues with a Clinton presidency at this point too, right? I think she would be an unpopular president had she been elected. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you go down a very interesting path if you think about who gets elected in 2020 or 2024. Though you kind of have to ask that question with Bush too. If Bush wins re-election, who gets elected in 1996? 
or in 2000, for that matter? That's a good question. It's possibly very strange. Jack Kemp. You think there are five consecutive elections of <laughs> Republican presidents? No, probably not. Or, but um, the thing is, like, what happens if the Democrats triangulate and then lose? Like, that's a, you know. Right. I don't like that. That's not good. No. And you know, I, th- I think a Clinton presidency would hit a brick wall after the midterms with either a Paul Ryan or a god forbid a kevin mccarthy led house of representatives who Mm -hmm. possibly just like do nothing when COVID happens because hillary is actually trying to lead on COVID, unlike trump where the congress was like hey you need to sign all this otherwise it's going to be really bad i feel like clinton would be the one to be like you need to pass something this is going to be really bad and then kevin mccarthy's like (laughs) guess who's up for re-election this year you Mm. that's not good but the, the positive case for clinton honestly the top of my list will remain the supreme court seats i think that is very very important the the next three decades in american jurisprudence are going to be very very different because hillary clinton was not president you know what i mean yes i uh, agree and you would also just think too that it, like the the even long-term effect is that it's it saps power from the far right like does charlottesville happen if hillary clinton's president like that right does the organizing strength of the far right does it stay together if trump loses right i think it's it probably does to some extent it's probably not quite as powerful and even now i think it's power is kind of like depending on your definition of the far right it, it's it's just manifested in different ways but it's not quite the like richard spencer is like the non-factor now i think yeah whereas like in 2017 it's like oh this might be like one of the most influential men in america this <laughs> Yeah, and my my next kind of pro Clinton point also contrasts her against Bush, and it's you have to think about who she would have surrounded herself with as president compared to the people Bush surrounded himself by, who are actually not great. Uh, Dan Quayle is George H. W. Bush's vice president. That shows a lack in judgment, in my opinion. <laughs> I would agree. We talked about it in running these. Is like this. It was like a dangerous mistake. This is like a Sarah Palin level mistake, just how incredibly incompetent this guy was. But, you know, I, I think the Clinton team certainly would have been very capable. I think you would have had, I actually think you could have had Joe Biden as Secretary of State in a Clinton White House. That would have made sense. You would have had Michelle Flournoy as Secretary of Defense. You could have had like a Hickenlooper in the cabinet. You could have had Granholm in the cabinet. Competent, qualified people who we've seen kind of come to political prominence since. Mm-hmm. But... If you want me to like really cap off my comparison between Clinton and H.W. Bush, this is my question. (laughs) Didn't we do okay without George H.W. Bush? (laughs) Did we lose anything when he did not win re-election? Because I think we did lose something when Clinton lost election. Well, it's, it's like I said, I think when we were doing Watching Mates, it's like, like if you are a Republican and you're considering every post George H.W. Bush president, how is Bill Clinton not your favorite one? <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? It's like both of the Republican presidents have serious, serious, serious flaws. You're not going to like Obama. You're not going to like Biden. But Bill Clinton did a lot of stuff that Republicans wanted him to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I would I would generally agree. I think that, yeah, I, I don't think it's, I, I really don't think it's much of a debate, honestly. I think America would have more or less been the same, actually, had H.W. Bush won. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree. If not worse, honestly, because I think the Democratic Party is kind of in disarray. Like, you lose four elections in a row, and that's like... We, we talked about this on our special Al Gore episode. The last time a party lost four presidential elections in a row, between 1932 and 1948, the Republicans lost five in a row. Yeah. And then 
you had the sort of like democratic losing streak right after the civil war like that like that it, it caused serious like self-reflection and reorganizing within the party which i think had already happened within the democrats after bush won in 88 so yeah i i agree i i think that there's really no good reason for clinton not to to advance the final four boom we did it <laughs> we did Bush has had a very good run. We've unpacked a lot of very interesting things with him, but I think at some point the reality of just we did fine without Bush. <laughs> like he was president, he did a good job. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did he wow me? <laughs> no. Well, it's the thing too. It's like, does he kind of move further to the right in his reelection because he now has like a he doesn't have to worry about his next reelection? You know what I mean? And and I'll, I'll go back to something you said um, may have been like three or four episodes ago, kind of about Thomas Dewey, who we of course have also knocked off. But it was like I, I feel like America genuinely missed out on a Hillary Clinton presidency. We did not miss out on a George H. W. Bush presidency. We got it. <laughs> You know, we saw it was like, I I think we would have missed out on a Bill Clinton presidency, honestly, but Mm -hmm. here we are. Let's move on. You want to pour one out for H.W. Bush? This this Uh, is sad. He's been with us so long. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll pour out whatever his favorite (laughs) beverage is. Tab. He did, uh, as I was reading regularly, I did talk about how he was just kind of like hanging out, like drinking a beer in his suite while he was like waiting to find out if he was going to be named Reagan's running mate. So he, he enjoyed a beverage. Yeah, well... Moving on. The next competition we have is between our last number one seed, Vice President Al Gore, and a number two seed, John Kerry. Al Gore, as you know, was vice president under Bill Clinton in the 90s. He was the Dems nominee in 2000 against Republican George W. Bush, where he, of course, won the popular vote and the recount in Florida was stopped, so he did not win the Electoral College. Yes, and John Kerry, of course, also ran and lost to George W. Bush in 2004. Obviously, the Iraq War, big election topic at that time. He was a senator from Massachusetts and, of course, would go on to become Secretary of State and is actually currently working in the Biden administration. So this is interesting because we have two people who lost to the, <laughs> the same, same guy, guy, two back-to-back nominees. And so it's, we really I, don't like George W. Bush. We don't, no. But it's interesting, right? Because, okay, so if you want to be simplistic about it, you could say, like, well, we could just prevent him from becoming president altogether. <laughs> Or we could prevent, just cut his term short. But also, to be fair, we don't know what happens in the universe where Al Gore wins. Maybe Bush runs again in 2004 and Oh, wins. my God. <laughs> I, I think we do know what happens in the universe where Al Gore wins, Mike. We covered it in a bonus episode. Well, I think we kind of disagreed on what happened, actually. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think you, the simple point you make is probably where I'm going to come down on this one, but I'm open to a bit more discussion. And it's like... Yeah, do you stop the mistakes of the Bush presidency entirely? Or do you do you say, give him the four years, let him do all of that stuff, and then we'll stop him? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, so, yes, there's that. Do we have a point-to-point, gore-to-carry comparison that we're interested in making? Yeah, I, I think let's start with John Kerry. Okay. I, I think John Kerry, here are a couple points to his favor over Al Gore, I would say. <laughs> if he wins in 2004... That's a fair and square win. He is not tainted by the 2000 recount. Whereas if Al Gore wins, presumably, you have half the country hating him, like they did with George Mm -hmm. W. Bush. Yes. So that makes him a better president from a, like, legitimacy standpoint. And probably, like, relations with Congress and stuff. That... I think that is actually Kerry's best thing going for him, right? Yeah. Do you have another? Kerry is just like a, and this is not a slight against Al Gore. I mean, like, you can see as, like, Secretary of State, 
and his current role as sort of like the, I guess you could call him kind of like the climate policies are for the Biden White House. But I think that you can make the case that he was, not to say that Al Gore was ill-suited for 2000, but I actually think Kerry was like, like he would have done well in 2004, if you know what I mean. He seems like he has the diplomatic chops to kind of get America out of a sticky situation. He seems like he has the diplomatic chops to start to kind of get the ball rolling on the kind of environmental issues that Gore wanted to get the ball rolling on, albeit later in his career. I know Al Gore was a senator too, but I don't know. I, I kind of get the feeling that coming straight from the Senate, he would also be able to kind of work with what was a kind of in some ways like a more ideologically diverse Senate back then, at least certainly mm. like with it, each of the parties was more ideologically diverse, which in a way made parties ideologically more similar to each other, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So th- that helps. One thing that I think does hurt though is that his vice president would have been John Edwards. Yes. That is on my list. <laughs> Four years later, I mean, 2007 to like 2008 is when that breaks. That would have been a problem. That being the revelation that John Edwards has used campaign funds to. Did he pay off his mistress? Well, and he had a kid. <laughs> well, yes. He basically cheated on his wife while she was dying of cancer. He used more than $1 million in political donations to hide his affair. Yeah, that would have been a problem. Yes. I think, to go back to what you said, I think Kerry could have been a better president on, like, the economy and on education. And definitely on, like, I just want to say on crisis response just in general. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because Al Gore is clearly the more experienced. He has more experience. Mm-hmm. And the, just having, like, watched both of them talk for basically my entire life at this point, this is going to sound weird. <laughs> but I actually think John Kerry is more charismatic yeah, which Does is that funny make because sense? people thought he was boring. <laughs> right, but I actually um, think like John Kerry would be just like he strikes me as like a twenty years younger Joe Biden. You know, I was like, gonna like, say, well, he's he was like I feel like he's Joe Biden with a filter, <laughs> like right. It's like I, I imagine him like walking around and being like, "What's up?" You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas Al Gore would be like, "What is up?" <laughs> Al, Al, even though I think you could argue John Kerry is more of a wonk than Al Gore, Al Gore presents as more than a wonk than John Kerry. I'd want to hang out with John Kerry more. Yes. And not just because he could show me all the best windsurfing sites. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. Al Gore's vice president would have been Joe Lieberman, though, so that also would have been no picnic. Better than Ed. The Edwards thing is like a problem waiting to happen. Yes. yes. Lieberman is not good, but he's not like that bad. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he would not have been forced to resign in disgrace <laughs> right. from the vice presidency. He probably would have disagreed publicly with Al Gore on a lot of things. Yeah. And who knows, depending on who runs in 2004, maybe even supported the Republican. But <sighs> Yeah. My, my one last note kind of in favor of Kerry here is he would be our first and only president born in Colorado. I didn't realize he was born in Colorado. Yeah. I thought you were going to say he'd be our first and only president married to the heiress of a catcher. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> that would have been awesome, man. Free ketchup. So, look, the, the problem... How's, how's this for a terrible metaphor? Okay. You show up at a vending machine, <laughs> and it has two things. It has a can of Coke for $1, okay. and it has a half can of Coke that's also for $1. Mm-hmm. Which would you rather buy? The full can of Coke. <laughs> right. I think we're kind of just killing time so that we can swoop in and give it to Al Gore, because I think Al Gore would have just been a better president overall, despite the fact that he's probably unexciting, he's uninspiring, mm-hmm. he'd have little positive governing majority, but our bonus episode on the Al Gore presidency kind of sold me on this. Oh yeah, it's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right? Yeah. And Al Gore is the prevention and John Kerry would have been the cure. Yes. 
I also think it just leads to a better outcome for the nation overall, right? As you have eight, presumably eight more years of a Democratic administration, or at least four. Whereas mm. if Kerry gets elected, you assume he loses re-election in 2008, right? Yeah. Um, especially if the John Edwards thing is blowing up at the same time. I would have liked to have had him as president more than Al Gore, mm-hmm. but I think Al Gore would have been a better president. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. John Kerry would have been more entertaining. Right. Al Gore would have been, like, boringly competent. Which and, well, I do like. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, better to be boring and competent than entertaining and incompetent. Yeah. And also, it just would have been wild for, like, to have a Democrat from Tennessee as the president going into the 2000s when, like, Tennessee and, like, the rest of the South moves very hard to the right. Like, yeah. who, who knows what happens when, with, with all that. But anyway, yes, I think, I think we agree that Al Gore should move on. All right. We have a Gore v. Clinton showdown coming up. Any words of sorrow for, for our loss of John Kerry? Nah. I mean, I, I think he would agree, right? Even he would be like, you know what? Fair point. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Then we're halfway through round four, and we will take a commercial break. Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. And we're back for the second part of round four. Next up, we have our Cinderella story. Number eight seed, Benjamin Harrison versus our number seven seed, John Quincy Adams. Yeah, so this is definitely like, I mean, people know of John Quincy Adams, but like it's probably our two lesser known contestants remaining. So I feel like with both these guys, it's tough, right? Because I feel like we both really like the idea of both of them and like what they wanted to do, but what they ultimately didn't get to do. You know what I mean? They both have no congressional support yes, in their time. But they have they have some good ideas, right? <laughs> yes. At least ideas we think are good. Yes. C- certainly in their in their time. I mean they're both <laughs> they are both presidents who lost a reelection. Like we said, that kind of appeals to us. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sometimes Benjamin Harrison has done uniquely well. I think he's the most surprising one to make it to this point from my standpoint. Maybe Gerald Ford. I am genuinely surprised that we are here and Harrison is like a finalist. Yes, me too. John Quincy Adams, I've always been a light fan of. There's something we haven't confronted with Benjamin Harrison. Is it his beard? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Do you know what two tragedies in Native American history happen under the Benjamin Harrison presidency? I do not. The uh, massacre at Wounded Knee happens okay. earlier. I thought that presidency. was earlier. I was going to guess that, but I assumed that was earlier. But okay. And, and the annexation of Hawaii also happens under his presidency. It's actually a big thing that Grover Cleveland will run against him on again mm. four years later. So he will say, like, we should not have done that. That was bad. It was one of those situations where Cleveland was probably right. <laughs> Um, ah, it was all the, the Dole Fruit Company's fault. Yeah. The annexation of Hawaii is like a very dark, horrible story. The more you learn about it, it's it, we basically just like invented a, a coup in, of this like functioning country in the Pacific and, and took it over because we wanted it. Yeah. So those are dark things against Harrison. Like we said, he was ahead of his time on race, federal oversight, antitrust. I, I think he was actually ahead of his time in like what the presidency could and should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, historians seem to think McKinley, who people sort of see as a turning point in like what the presidency was, took inspiration from Harrison. But those things are definitely staying on Harrison's record. 
Yes, I would agree. I cannot think of a comparable stain on Adams's record. Outside of he was kind of mean and people didn't like him. <laughs> well, you, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't disqualify you from being president. Well, I guess the people don't really like you usually disqualifies people. Yes. But the problem, of course, with John Quincy Adams is he did not win the popular vote in either of his elections. Mm-hmm. Has, you know, no congressional support. He has the Senate for like two years between 1831 and 1833. The, the problem is neither of them would have been a very effective president had they been reelected. We have to imagine. Yeah, I, yes, I, I would agree, I think. Harrison probably would have had, I think he would have had like a Republican Congress, right? I'm yeah. Not. Harrison may have had more more luck, but... Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, too, because you look at who, you know, we, we spend the first two matchups talking a lot about who these people would have replaced. Right. And so for John Quincy Adams, it's Andrew Jackson, which, you know, you want to talk about Native American tragedies. I mean, that's, that's kind of... Uh, right. What in some ways he's like most known for, at least I think for people of a certain age. Yeah. With Benjamin Harrison's replaced by Grover Cleveland, who is interesting. He was very, like, fiscally conservative. He oversaw the Panic of 1893 and was was just very tight fiscally, as I said. But he was also an opponent of the spoils system that Harrison also was a kind of an opponent of and that Harrison wanted to run against. Right. I, I think in terms of who they lost to, there's no comparison. I think Jackson is is a much bigger problem than Cleveland. Cleveland has some redeeming qualities. Jackson does not have a lot (laughs) in my mind. And if you want to talk about, you know, Native American policy, John Quincy Adams was certainly more progressive than probably even Benjamin Harrison. He believed in kind of gradual assimilation via like consensual agreements with natives on the continent, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure there is a whole lot of problematic stuff that would happen in reality if that were to have come to fruition. Yeah. But consensual agreements sounds a lot better than wounded knee massacre to me. Or, you know, Trail of Tears. And another complaint I actually have about Harrison that will sound petty compared to that one is he was big into tariffs. And tariffs, like, raised the cost of living a lot during this period. Whereas mm-hmm. John Quincy Adams was much more of a, we should expand American trade. Like, we're, we're a young country. We're making stuff. We should expand trade and, and kind of prop up trade, which presumably would also use some tariffs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But that view makes more sense to me when the country is young than it makes near the turn of the century. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And we should know, too, that Adams was also certainly later his congressional career not a fan of slavery. Yeah. The, um, the, the Adams family is, I think, got a pretty good record on slavery for its time, actually. Yes, I would agree. He's also against the Mexican War. Again, this was like before he was not issued necessarily when he was president. That was more of a congressional thing. Yeah, I think that you're talking to me into John Quincy Adams. You know, yeah, it's tough to kind of put forward somebody in both in Adams and Harrison, who, like we said, is not going to have a lot of congressional support, is not going to be like very popular among a lot of people and like could probably like leave like pissing a lot of people off. But yeah. I think I agree that like Adams would have kind of like introduced maybe some ideas that would have been beneficial to introduce, like you said earlier, rather than later. Yeah. And you're talking about kind of like ending up okay, where it's like, I think we ended up okay with Cleveland as president. Yeah. <laughs> Jackson, I think, was important in some respects, but, you know, also kind of did a lot of bad things, too. So history has not aged him well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the best case I can make for Harrison is kind of what you said, right? He's like, he does have control of Congress and presumably a little, if he wins re-election, he'd have a little more leeway to actually do some of this stuff. I think there's actually very little chance John Quincy Adams gets any chance yes. uh, to do any of these things. But here, here's a backwards thought for you that kind of overturns the entire premise of the show. I think you need better presidents earlier on than you need in the middle. Yeah, I agree. Set a better precedent. No one remembers all these presidents in the middle for a reason. So are we giving it to JQA? All right, Adams advances, and the Cinderella story that was Benjamin Harrison is gone. Anything we want to say? I I think people should go and learn about Benjamin Harrison. Yeah, he he had some interesting ideas. I do think he had a bit of a weak path, you know? (laughs) He beat Stevenson in 56, Nixon, and then Van Buren in 40. But yeah, no, I I was, like, I'm eager to learn more about him. And actually that kind of whole general era of history, because it's such a weird time, because the side that wins the Civil War is the dominant political party, and they propose, I think, more progressive ideas than you would have expected somebody to propose in the 19th century, even though most of them end up failing. (laughs) Yeah. But just, yeah, just generally an, an interesting time. Yeah, I'm glad. I, I think he is he is the person I'm most glad to have met doing this. Yes. I'll put it that Also, way. our only president from the great state of Indiana. Well, there you go. That's yeah. that's nice. I'm not sure I'd say great, but that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to our last matchup of this round. We have number 12 seed, Henry Clay in the election of 1832. He's our last Henry Clay remaining versus number three seed, Gerald Ford. Are we still introducing these people or are we just being like, yeah, you know who they are? You know who they are. You know who Gerald Ford is. Henry Clay yeah. is, is... We've talked about him more than we've talked about anyone else at this point. Yes. So it should be it should be noted that this is the second one. This is the one where he runs directly against Jackson. This is not the corrupt bargain year. Right. This is mid-Clay, as I call it. Yes. Mid-Clay. This, this is eight years after his prior run and 12 years before his next run. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of... That has to be a record, right? Yeah, that, that's a... It's a long time. Yeah. It'd be like if Mitt Romney ran again in 2024. Yeah. Um, Anyway. So, yeah. It's also funny, too, because I feel like we have Gerald Ford, a guy who probably never expected to be president (laughs) and is like the uh, the definition of an accidental president, and Henry Clay, the guy who really, 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 really wanted to be president. (laughs) But then was was which, foiled his every turn. Which, historically speaking, we've been nicer to the former, right? We kind of liked Benjamin Harrison because he kind of didn't want to be president again. Right, yeah, yeah. We have been incredibly kind to Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. We've also been unusually kind to Ford because you had a, a stunning turnaround in the last couple <laughs> episodes, Mike. You were really, you know, I thought you were you were done with Ford, but then you made like a really good case for him. And we talked about he's a pro-choice, socially liberal Republican. He support, yeah. supported the ERA. You know, he's a, he's a steady hand in an unsteady time. Uh, not very exciting. No, not at all. I'm a big Henry Clay guy, so I think you should go first. So, yeah, I mean, I think if, if you want to make the Ford case, and I'm not saying that I do, but if you wanted to, I think you'd kind of say the 1976 to 1980 is such a huge, huge turning point for the conservative movement and the Republican Party, right? Mm-hmm. That's when most of the sort of the religious right as we know it is sort of organized and coalesces. That's when 
they really sort of figure out their tactics for fighting abortion, for fighting gay rights. We get a lot of gay rights rollbacks, actually, during that time. It's when the ERA is defeated, of course. And it's also when neoconservatism is ascendant within the party as well. What's funny is that, like, so obviously, yes, Ford was pro-choice. His wife was very pro-choice. His wife, very pro-ERA, as was he. You know, pretty socially liberal, right? I think fiscally probably pretty conservative. I, I actually don't really see his... Mm. and Carter's fiscal policies, I think being dramatically different. Maybe Ford's a little stingier and Ford probably doesn't have kind of like the bold environmental goals that Carter sets out. And of course, Carter never really gets to meet. And foreign policy wise, I mean, Ford probably doesn't initiate the Camp David Accords. I don't know that he really does anything much different during the Iranian hostage crisis. I think either of their hands would have been tied. Maybe he doesn't try like the disastrous Operation Eagle Claw. I don't know. Yeah, But like, Henry Kissinger, a lot of people don't like Henry Kissinger, and for good reason. I think he did a lot of bad things during Vietnam. But he was, like, considered because... Kissinger was like comparatively kind of diplomatic when it came to the Soviets and to the People's Republic of China was actually like vilified by like the Reaganite, right? Like they hated Henry Kissinger. And there was a period of time where Reagan actually considered bringing Ford on as his running mate. And they actually used, like talked about having like a quote unquote co-presidency. And there were, there were multiple reasons why this didn't work out. <laughs> One sticking point for Ford was like Kissinger needs a role in the administration. And that would that probably would have upset a lot of like Reagan supporters. And like Kissinger became like a bad word among the, the conser- conservative Republicans at the time. Hmm. Like, he got as much crap as, like, Carter and Edmund Muskie did. It, it was... It's actually kind of interesting. So I think there's an argument to be made, and you know, you're somebody who doesn't really care for Ronald Reagan, that like Ford in 76, does it, Reagan probably runs in 80 then, I think. Yeah. And probably gets the nomination. But does having a sort of like a socially moderate, if not socially liberal Republican in the White House, and also a, in some ways, like a liberal internationalist Republican, as opposed to the hawkish Reagan, does that meaningfully change the course of history? It might. I think there's probably a world in which Reagan wins anyway in 1980. Yes. Ford is not exciting or inspiring in any way. No. <laughs> and that's, that's a problem. Yes. <laughs> and Reagan is very exciting. He's very inspiring. And I, I don't see, after that close of a loss... You know, if you lose a close primary, your motivation is probably to just run again. But certainly, it doesn't always work out. You know, you can ask... Bernie Sanders, you know, it doesn't always end up in you becoming president. I prefer the version of the Ford Republican Party. I think Ford has a, he's a president who has a very strong case to be reelected. I think he gets way more shit than he deserves, Yeah. all things considered. But I, I cannot sit here and say with like a straight face that he is the best president we never had. Right. And the issue too is that it's like anybody who was president between 1976 and 1980 was screwed, right? Like I, yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> yeah. think there's anything... You could have done like the fact that Jimmy Carter, who had like, and granted, like the composition of the Democratic Party was much different than it is today. It was not as ideologically cohesive. But the fact that Carter had majorities in the Senate in, and in the House and could not pass his sort of very bold, transformative agenda items, Ford's not going to have much help either, <laughs> right? Right. And that's not going to stop the stagflation. It's not going to stop the energy crisis. It's not going to stop the Iranian hostage crisis. I just don't think it goes very well. Henry Clay, on the other hand, maybe you prevent some Jacksonian things from happening. I, I feel like America missed out on a Henry Clay presidency. Yeah. You get a central bank earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, again, earlier. You just have so many like economic crises happening in the late 1830s that you know, having some better monetary policy may have 
may have helped. You had like a, a giant banking failure in 1837, the panic mm-hmm. of 1837, actually. And just the American system. Why were we against that? Why is that a thing that we weren't like, yes, we should have roads and infrastructure across this country? That should have become ingrained in American political philosophy 200 years ago. And it is sad that it took us until like the 1930s. <laughs> Yes, I agree. The political culture of Henry Clay's America, I, th- I always feel weird to say, yes, I know he owned slaves, but, right? Because it's right. very easy for me to say that, right? It should be noted that, like, he, yes, he owned slaves, but he supported the right of, like, abolitionists to be abolitionists. And he opposed the gag rule, which, which basically said that you couldn't debate the issue of slavery in Congress, too, right? He obviously, I think, came from a position in a time and place where owning slaves, I think, was a way of life, and I don't know that he considered it an evil, per se, but he was, he seemed like he was open to some discussions. Well, he was a gradualist, right? Is, is he believed... Yeah. And you may not like this comparison, because mathematically speaking, there is a one in four chance that these two actually go up against each other in the final match, assuming we give it to Henry Clay here. He and Hillary Clinton have that very much in common. Is they're both very <laughs> gradual? Okay, shut up. I didn't realize we were no, taking uh, that turn. No, no, no. In that they are policy gradualists. They do not come into office in this Joe Biden style of like, we're going to pass five trillion dollars of stuff this year maybe even six trillion it's like we're gonna fight this fight that we can win you know i may not be for slavery but that's not a political reality so we can do this we can stop slavery from getting into new states you know we can deal with the fugitive slave act we can chip away you you have to fight the battles you can win and i i wish more politicians ran on that (laughs) like it would just feel like it'd be much more boring but much better if joe biden was like yeah, you know, we'll do what we can. <laughs> but that is that is the only way it's ever gotten done, right? I, I remember when Barack Obama kind of pivoted to the center after the 2010 midterms and a lot of Democrats were like complaining, you, you need to do more. You should, you should be doing more. You shouldn't be compromising on some of this stuff. And there was like a point made that it was, can you imagine if you guys were saying this to FDR when he created Social Security and it only benefited like women and orphans? The point is you, you get one thing done and then 10 years later you add to it. And then you add to it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Gerald Ford isn't that exciting either, but I think that... <laughs> That Henry Clay was the, the right person at the right time, and it is yeah, a, I agree. It's like the whole gradualist thing too. It's it's one of those things where it's like the the political culture and precedent set by Andrew Jackson is this like fiery populism and this this very sort of like swashbuckling, uh, rugged individualism, which I think has always been a part of kind of like the American character, if you will. Mm. But I think we'd probably be better off if it was replaced with a sort of statesman-like master planner long view philosophy of governing which is what as to my knowledge is kind of what henry clay seems to represent yes i think henry clay deserves to make it to our federal four because they're all federal people here you know we have no governors (laughs) it's my cute name for it at least it's a good one advancing clay any any words of remorse for uh Jerry. He seems like a very nice man put in an impossible situation. Yeah. I, I said this last episode, but I like his, his focus on being a public servant his whole life mm-hmm. and like how he could have made like a positive message out of that. It's like, it's okay to be a politician. You can do good things for people and there's no shame in that. Like, that's not a dirty word. You can work your way up through Congress and do good things. That's nice. I wish people I talked like that still. Me too. But that concludes round four. So now we have gone from eight candidates to just four any surprising results in that round? I'm trying to think of like who had the most interesting debate. I think it was Bush v. Clinton. But I, I think the most 
surprising pick was probably Quincy Adams over Harrison. I think that was the closest pick. Yeah, I, I would agree. I also feel like there was like the weakest matchup too, in a, in a way. I, that's just like the weakest section of the whole bracket, I think. Yeah. I feel like I, I assumed we were going to put Clint up forward. I assumed we were going to put Gore forward. I assumed we were going to put Clay forward. So I wasn't <laughs> like absolutely shocked. We premeditated this. Yes. <laughs> but it's funny, like if this were like an actual like tournament, we've got a seven seed and a 12 seed in the final four. And then we have like a two seed and a, and a one seed. So that's normal. But like seven and 12, that's that's crazy. Henry Clay lost really, really bad to Andrew Jackson. He did, yes. I look forward. The next the next episode is going to be so good, right? Because Clinton v. Gore, you know, they're close enough in time and have very similar ideologies, and they both have a very close relationship with Bill Clinton from a policy and personal standpoint, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they both, you know, deal with the last two Republican presidents, who I think we can agree are not great. Yes. Uh, and then Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, they're like partners in government who want the same thing, and one of them actually got it and couldn't do anything, and the other one tried three times, and (laughs) these are both, like, really good matchups in our federal four. Yeah, I agree. Yes, definitely good matchups, and uh, we're looking forward to those matchups. Only, only, I mean, only three left in the entire bracket, so we only have three to look forward to, so I'm not going to ask you what you're looking forward to, but I'm going to tell the listener that you have to stay tuned to find out, because that's just true. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found, or, of course, you can find it on thepostwriter.com. You can also stay tuned with our live updating bracket at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight to see how each candidate fared as we whittle them down over the course of the series. You can tweet at us at thepostwriter, or Ian Email us at contact at thepostwriter.com to let us know what picks you would have made, what we got wrong, and whatever tremendous injustice we committed against this time, Benjamin Harrison. The Harrison stands. <laughs> <laughs> they were living well the past few weeks, but uh, unfortunately they, the rug has been pulled out from under them. They've been like telling everyone about the podcast. They're like, guys, I found a podcast. It's like really big into Benjamin Harrison. Yes, our listenership in Indiana is just plummeting right now. <laughs> But we'll see you next time at Floor Fight for the Federal Four. Thanks for listening, everybody.